0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guests are Stephanie Feldman and Nathaniel Popkin, both fiction writers who collaborated to edit an anthology called Who Will Speak for America, a volume of poems, stories, essays, photographs, and cartoons that address questions of what America is and means in a post-Trump era. Who Will Speak for America contains work from 43 contributors who are trying to answer the title's question while acknowledging significant social and political issues in this country, like racism, immigration, incarceration, drug addiction, climate change, education, and many others. The works in the anthology were primarily written just after President Donald Trump's inauguration. We began the discussion with Stephanie Feldman and Nathaniel Popkin explaining how the book was born after an international literary protest took place just before the 2016 inauguration.
1: More than 300 cities and towns across the country took part in it. In Philadelphia, we, had a, we, we sort of took on a special responsibility, held the event near Independence Hall, uh, where so many of the American protest writings uh, were actually written and not just in the colonial and revolutionary period. And then we asked 35 writers to take part and we asked them to read not their own writing and largely not writing that was contemporary, but work that had been written before. Some of it quite appropriate to the place where we were reading. So a protest from 1799 written by one of America's leading free black community members uh, demanding an anti slavery. Um, so, and using the words of the Constitution, uh, throwing it back in the faces of, of the white power structure. When someone reads something like that, so, such, a powerful, such powerful words that were spoken by other people in other times, it has an effect on people. Um, and for example, we had um, Alan Ginsberg wrote a poem called Friday the 13th and was performed in, it was read by him in Philadelphia during um, Earth Day, the first Earth Day in 1970. And in that poem, he asks, what can poetry do? And so we took all of that as our inspiration. And those who came in attendance to the event were, I mean, many people were crying. Many people were moved and they wanted to do more. This was a week before the inauguration and and it really felt like the beginning of the resistance.
2: Yeah, one of the poets that day said to me that she had never felt more patriotic. And it was really inspiring to see how much power there was in just coming together and revisiting this American tradition of protest literature. And the fight has always been going on. The fight never ended. The fight continues. And there was such a great energy in hearing all of these different kinds of texts from different time periods you know, speeches and poetry and all kinds of things. And, you know, that's something that we wanted to capture in this book, too.
0: So can you talk a little bit about protest literature?
1: In in a sense, there's no such thing, really, as protest literature. Um, There are, I think, political tracks. There are speeches. There are works of polemic. There's philosophical tracts that are written from an ideological point of view. And and then there is writing that comes out of a need to express what is so disturbing about a particular moment. And to use words not only to identify what's so horrifying, to um, talk about why it's important but also to imagine, and this is what I think we try to do in Who Will Speak for America. I mean, the United States is a work of imagination, much more so than some other countries, I think, in the world. It was created out of an imagination, about an idea. And in that sense, it it came out of writing. It came out of documents. It came out of ideas written down, I think of the Declaration of Independence in the way that it was written by Thomas Jefferson, and then it was revised, things were crossed, unfortunate things were crossed out. Um, compromises were made, but it was written. So I guess that's a, prote- that's a piece of protest literature. In our case today, any kind of response or reimagining to the situation that we're in, and it could be personal, and it, it could be much more outward facing, it could be historic, Madeline Teen in our book looks at the work of a Cambodian writer from the 1970s who's trying to figure out how how to live a moral life amidst a time of extraordinary political crisis in his country that ended in his own death. And so protest writing, I think, just comes out of our experience and our desire to create a better world.
2: Also, right now, when we have a white nationalist power structure... Um, an explicit one, you know, there's something very strongly political about just expressing yourself if you don't conform to that identity. And something that in a different time might seem like a sort of quiet, reflective piece, now has a lot of political power when you're just saying, this is who I am, and this is my experience of the world.
0: When you organize the book, you you sectioned it off into parts. Basically, um, you have a preamble and then speaking to America and speaking for America. And then within the speaking to America, you have for our families, to ourselves, to our Americas. And then speaking for America, you have, you know, for the nation and for the future. So you have these 43 different contributors. What, if any, themes did you find that, were prevailing through all these writers, even though they were writing from different locations and different cultures and different backgrounds, were there any themes emerged that you saw throughout the book that either you were surprised about or were not surprised about?
2: It was interesting because we we asked everyone to answer the question in the title, who will speak for America, and to write about American identity. And the pieces that came back um, approached that question in so many different ways. And we ended up organizing the book into the sections that we did because we saw that even though the pieces were very different, they seemed to be telling one story. And um, the book opens with the election and the immediate aftermath of the election. And then it moves on to talk about, you know, our families, how Trumpism, and I, I should say it's not just the election, but it's all the forces that led up to it and that the election exposed. But how that affects people on a personal level how that affects people on a larger level um, and then moving out to write about uh, American identity as a concept and then into the future. Because as Nathaniel said earlier, this is an act of imagination and we need to reimagine the American future in a just way so that we can then try to bring that into existence.
1: When Barbara Jordan wrote her speech in 1976 that she delivered to the Democratic National Convention as the first black woman in history to do so, she, she asked the question, who, who, who then, she asked, will speak for America? And this was after Watergate, and it was after Vietnam, and in essence, a nation that was in crisis. In, in the wake of those massive events and the fragmentation Of the late 1960s and early 1970s, she was asking who then will speak for American ideals? Um, Who will speak up for the country? Who will speak up for the things that made us and great and united us? When we put the question out to our writers, they immediately interpreted it because of the moment we live in. And this is the way in which There is a unifying idea in this book that is drawn from all of the different, or many of the different contributors, I should say. And that is that the answer of the question is treated a little bit differently than how Barbara Jordan had originally intended it. It's treated in this book as who will be allowed in, as Stephanie says, during this white nationalist regime that we're living under. Who will be allowed to speak for America? And in that sense, there is a strong thread of thinking about what America means, both as a geographic entity and as an idea, and in thinking about how one expresses oneself as an American.
0: I noticed several things running through it. I noticed that there was... A lot of themes of of empathy for the other. I noticed uh, the power of stories and narrative like being called out itself. I noticed writings about racism and the inherent racism that our country was built upon. And one of the things that I was really wondering in some of the essays were, while this is speaking to this Trump era that the racism and inequality of our country was building, it has been building up to this explosion, which I don't even think we've completely exploded yet with regard to that, that the, these seeds have been sown since Christopher Columbus arrived here, since the slaves arrived here.
1: That's uh, part of what happened when we put the call out. It, I mean, I think that people felt that they couldn't, in uh, with honesty, speak for American ideals as they'd been practiced by this country since um, European invasion of the continent, right? Like, so no one, no one felt comfortable in this time period speaking from those ideals. In fact, many of them are called into question um, in, in the book by various writers. So I um, I would say it's absolutely true So when, and that was part of the reason why we broke the book up the way we did when when we say, speaking to America, it it means in a sense that we're sort of having a look, we're analyzing, we're thinking about um, the America that's before us. And that's not the America that began with the election of Donald J. Trump as president. It's the America that, as you said, um, Mitzi has been building up and building up over generations. Uh, Renee Denfeld, who's an incredible writer and activist um, living in Oregon, she makes the point that the, the extraordinary uh, industrial prison complex that we have created in this country, are incarcerate such a profound proportion of citizens has create is part of the reason why we're in this situation in the first place. That it radicalizes, it has radicalized white prisoners to a degree that they were able to fall in line with the right, with the white supremacist um, ideology of the president and his allies. And uh, that's an extraordinary point that I don't think we would have thought of. And that isn't that didn't happen just now. That's been happening.
2: Yeah, and she's made the point in some other writing as well that family separation is not a new thing and how the foster care system has been used to separate um, migrant families um, for years now. And, you know, how many children have been taken away from their parents and their parents have later been deported. And so, no, there, um, a lot of this has been fomenting and um, in practice for a long time.
1: Some of our writers are thinking about all of this that's going on in the United States today within an international context. So Ganzir, uh, an artist and writer who lives now in Denver, um, but who was born and raised in Egypt um, and who, was, who, who came as an asylee to the United States because his life was threatened um, in, in 2011 in Tahrir Square and in, in that moment of revolution in Egypt is able to relate that experience directly to his experience as an American asylee. And and he does so in the science fiction story that, that he's written in our collection
0: I want to talk about some of the pieces individually and for me I think there's a line it's a few lines actually but one that's the most poignant In a poem called Unbeing American by Samira Ahmed, she is originally from India, and she has a line in her poem that, to me, sums up this book, and it goes like this, and what they think is rebellion is, in truth, survival. The new reality is that rebellion is just survival these days if you care about your your earth and your families and your children and um, your clean air. Can we talk a little bit about this piece and do you want to tell me anything about Samira?
2: Yeah this is such a a wonderful piece and Samira is a YA novelist so she is writing for young people and children and I what I love about this poem is how accessible it is um, and how it starts with her as a child She's seven years old when a grown man screams, it's in second person, when a grown man screams at you, spitting knives from crooked purple lips, go home fucking Paki. You are confused because the ethnic slur is inaccurate. So she mm-hmm. she's innocent there. She's seven-year-old living her life and comes under assault. And the poem is about her learning to understand what that is. And then um, growing up to be prepared to fight against it. And um, she also has a novel coming out next year that's about a young Muslim woman who's in an American internment camp. So this is something that she's um, considering very deeply and bringing to a wide audience.
1: Samira's poem in this book and a few other pieces as well, written by uh, those who were not born in the United States, but uh, came here as refugees or immigrants. In light of the way in which refugees and and immigrants have been maligned as criminals, as violent, as animals, by a person who is the President of the United States. It's particularly extraordinary to read her words, um, and the words of others in this book, who not only are reflecting on the kind of like journey and overcoming obstacles, uh, and sort of power of the kind of um, almost cliched immigrant story, which you don't you don't really find in this book, but but it is you know there is a story line there. There's a story arc to the American immigrant that we seem to believe in as a nation, but also that they reveal such extraordinary doubt and even shame at losing their own original ethnic or national identity and exchanging it for this other one that they don't quite understand. And yet what I think we see in this collection through Samira's work and and other people's as well is the the constant desire to contribute and to adapt and to listen to your own emotional response uh, and to gird yourself against the horror. Uh, And so people are, are going through extraordinary vulnerability. And that vulnerability in the reader's eyes is really what is so powerful. And I think attaches all of us to the journey of Samira and the others.
2: And she sums up the complexity of her experience with such economy at the, toward the end of the poem. You know, she talks about what we talked about earlier which is that none of this is new. And she says, you weep for a land built on the backs of your black and brown brothers and sisters and soaked in their blood you claim your joy, you lay your roots, and in this land of the free and home of the brave, you plant yourself like a flag. So she can acknowledge the sadness she has for the past and for the struggles of the present, but also her own joy. She is not defeated, and she is not any less American for having this complex experience either.
0: One of the essays that I really enjoyed a lot was called If You Can Keep It by Veronica Scott Esposito. And one of the reasons that I really liked it is because she had a trajectory in her life where she grew up in a more conservative place in California outside of LA. She was going along with the trends of her society and her family of voting for George Bush and voting for some early California propositions that were not kind to illegal immigrants and people who committed crimes. And we sort of see her then leave and go to Berkeley and take more classes and soften to things like capital punishment and immigration issues. And I liked her writing because there was a path. Do you want to say anything about her essay? Yeah, well, she starts her path really by studying the constitutions,
2: which is, I think, is so is so great. And she writes in depth about the Federalist Papers and what she learned um, from reading them and from studying them as a as a high school student, uh, which brings home how important early education is.
1: This is perhaps the m- most straightforward piece in the book in the way that it, as you said, Mitzi, gives a path, an arc, a personal arc that is also about. It is also demonstrating to the rest of us that if California can go from an um, anti-immigrant right-wing state, which it was when she was growing up, to um, the single hope for liberalism in America, then the United States as a whole can do the same. And wow, that's really a powerful message.
2: It's also interesting coming back to this piece now because, as we've been talking about the book, we've been asked more than once you know, this is a time when there's this great divide among the right and the left, and people have a really hard time talking to each other. And how do we talk to each other? And should we talk to each other? And there's a lot of distrust. Um, that's something that Diane McKinney Whetstone and Malka Older talked about when we were in Washington together, and how, you know, if If you feel like the person you're talking to doubts your own humanity because of your race or your background, how do you have a conversation with that person? And Veronica gives a different point of view where she says, well, this is who I was. This is why I had the beliefs that I had. And this is how I came to this point of view. And this is how my mind was changed. So she's almost having that conversation with herself and giving us a kind of model, which is really important important right now when conversation is so difficult.
0: So what about the people in America who share this country that like what's going on? You know, how do we as a country go beyond our individual silos and reach across to get people to understand? I mean, I'm just thinking of people who might listen to this who like what's happening. How does that fit into maybe what you were thinking about when you were putting together this anthology. Well, when we're talking about what
2: writers can do in a time like this, one thing that writers do is tell stories, you know, whether it's through fiction or poetry or whatever genre and storytelling is really about empathy and opening yourself up to understand another person's experience and another person's point of view. And, um, everybody likes a good story (laughs) So I think that's something that um, we can do, not just as readers and writers, but as people. People are storytelling animals and to be willing to hear another person's story in good faith and try to understand what they're saying.
1: I actually don't think um, Americans in general are particularly ideological. We we don't. Sustain any kind of class-based um, political uh, I- interaction. You know, there, there's no, not even the Democratic Party, aside from Bernie Sanders' attempts, could create a class-based argument against the um, Republican uh, outlook. Right? And so, most people in this has been proven out. As I mean, the, the Trump folks figured it out as well as anybody, that people vote based upon some kind of emotions or emotional connection or instinct or some kind of urge that's boiling up in, inside of them. A powerful one, of course, is racism. So in that sense, Stephanie is absolutely right. Empathy is so important in that context if because people really are willing to listen to each other. I, I saw some uh, something... on social media the other day about a teacher on an airplane talking about how underfunded her classroom is, how difficult it is for her to provide books and supplies for her students who come from low-income backgrounds. Well, the people on the plane gave her $500. And I think that's legitimately American. At the same time, I think our role as writers is to try to find and exhibit the truth. Truth, of course, is a very, very difficult concept. Vladimir Putin two days ago said it doesn't exist. And the fact that he says that the truth doesn't exist is the basis for his dictatorship. And so we are finding right now that we are living most severely under a tyranny of lies. And those lies are broadcast every day, perhaps into the homes of those people that you mentioned who might like the way things are going right now. Until we can somehow find a way to share some facts, it's going to be hard to have that conversation with other people.
2: And then there's also the issue of the truth being uncomfortable. That, you know, the truth might make us feel bad. The truth might make us feel bad about, you know, ourselves or things that we've said or things that we've done. But that doesn't mean that, it's not worthwhile or that, you know, we shouldn't listen and sit with it and perhaps change our minds. You know, I was thinking if someone who likes what's happening in this country were to read this book, what would they encounter? And they would encounter a lot of anger. And I think everybody is very angry today. And that makes us also very defensive. And I think it's okay to be angry as long as you can listen to why someone else is angry and try to understand what brought them to that point. And it might come back to Samira's poem, which I don't think of as, a, as an angry poem exactly, but think of yourself as that seven-year-old at the very beginning of that poem. And if she is angry, she has a reason for that. And I think that we all need to learn to live with the uncomfortable truths in order to learn from them.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
2: Sure. I have a passage. Um, it was a little tricky to, to find something because... Um, Nathaniel and I don't have creative work in this anthology and we did the introduction and put the whole book together so I was trying to think about how those different those two sides of my work come together and I found a passage in a book by Sherry Holman who is a novelist and writes really beautiful novels that have influenced me a lot and sort of helped me figure out what I want to do as a fiction writer but she has this novel called Witches on the Road Tonight and a lot of it is about fear and how the media sows fear. And it's a very post 9-11 book, um, but remains um, relevant. And one reason I thought of her is because she was also a teacher of mine. And she always said, you know, you have to think, why does this story matter? Why is this a story I'm telling? And that's something I ask myself, no matter what I'm writing. So here's a passage from the beginning of Witches on the Road Tonight. Fear has a dialect for every occasion, doesn't it, dearest? The anxious lyric patter of fresh love, where every sentence has the potential to reveal the unlovable self, the atlas groan of a parent bent under the weight of his own immaturity. There's the fear of failure and nuclear annihilation and snakes of getting up in the morning. And then of course, there is the fear of the dark, which is as they all are the fear of death, which we dare not examine too closely while in life, lest it ruin all the more pleasurable fears of living and loving for why else fall in love or marry or have children, except to trail our fingers along the deliciously dark hallways and blind corners of what comes next.
0: Do you want to share a little more about why you chose this?
2: Well, I think it comes back just to what I learned from her as a writer and just the insistence that, you know, we have to think about what our stories mean um, politically, that all work is political. You know, you're either reinforcing the status quo or you're questioning it. And, you as a writer, you might get caught up in all kinds of flights of fancy, or you might try to seek commercial success. So, you know, good luck to you. Um, But in the end, what's important is um, what your work is bringing to the larger human conversation. And that's a question you always have to keep centered. And that's why, you know, this book, which has um, sections about a witch in Appalachia and sections about a woman working for the news media in 2011, And a narrative about a man whose job was to to, um, dress up as a vampire and present um, horror movies on cable access. And it's a family story and, and all of this exciting stuff. But it all comes back to fear and especially American fear and how it drives us.
0: Is there anything that you want to share about this book that was tricky or hard for you to write or changed a lot from the first draft?
1: First of all, there's an extraordinary difficulty in trying to make sense of a particular moment because you're so close to it. And as Stephanie said earlier, anger is blinding and it creates defensiveness. And it's hard to gaze very carefully at oneself during a moment of anger. So all that said, we had to figure out a way to step away from that, to pull ourselves back, and um create uh create a narrative through other people's work that would have its own kind of movement and path and arc so the the first thing we had to do was kind of pull back and see the work that had been submitted to us um for what it was to take each piece individually to work to strengthen each of those pieces that were sent in from the essays to the po- to the poetry to the pieces of fiction. Um, and then to figure out what could they all possibly mean together. Uh, anthologies are really strange books because you're inter as the reader, you're, you're interrupted constantly and you're having to switch gears and switch how you think about a piece the voice is constantly changing the the tableau upon which that voice exists is constantly changing and it's very hard to make sense of it and everyone is too close to the moment everyone is too angry everyone is too defensive so in all that we um, we actually took a day we had all we had been working for months to um, Solicit these works. We had gotten them back. Each we each sort of took a set of writers and worked with those writers on the editorial process. We got the pieces into the form that we liked them. And then we threw them all out onto the table and said, okay, how can we make this into a meaningful narrative? Because just putting them in a random order or creating a table of contents based upon some abstract idea wasn't going to do it and as we started to look at it we began to see that there was you know, it took us a long i mean it took us a whole day but there was an arc here there was a movement from pre-election day to election day to to having that immediate angry reaction a lot of writers wrote about that moment as it was reflected and refracted back on their own families and their own family life. Um, uh, the writer uh, Bassi Ikti writes about how the torment of the election was represented by her own through her own father and through her own son, and how ultimately the light of the day of the moment for her was seeing. The two of them come together across generations and how powerful that was. So there's really a personal and a familial piece to this. And then how do people then sort of take a breath and get their voices back, speaking for themselves and then ultimately speaking for the nation and the world towards the end of the book? And that was not, I don't think Stephanie or I had any idea, what kind of narrative would come out of, um, of this work. But there is one.
0: Where did you write this book, or at least um, the introduction and, and sort all the editing out?
1: I usually write from exactly where I'm sitting right now, the third floor of my house. And um, I don't really recall where, this, where we wrote this introduction. Um, of course, when you're writing something in collaboration... It's a very different process. And I I remember, you know, Stephanie and I have sort of merged our minds through this book, but our minds are not the same by any means. Um, And um, we came at this with a somewhat different perspective and because we value slightly different things. So there's... And I love that. I love that we were able to in the introduction, which we wrote together, bring together our two sensibilities. And they made sense. And, you know, Stephanie is the kind of writer and editor who's like, she's an extraordinary clear-eyed person and can look at something and so succinctly identify what is right or isn't right about it. Uh, and it's such a pleasure to work with her in that regard. So, and I'm a muddled thinker. So, you can two things come <laughs> but, together. But you
2: can start. I stare at the blank page and I think I don't know what I'm to say. How do I express this? And we worked really well together. And I sometimes work at home or I work in coffee shops near my home. And then sometimes we got together um, at the Athenaeum at in Philadelphia, where Nathaniel's the writer in residence. So um, I had never really. I like collaborated on a piece of writing before because I'm kind of a control freak. <laughs> but it was really nice to have a partner in this and to share drafts. I think you wrote the first draft and then I revised it and then you revised it. And then we sat there and looked at every sentence again together um, until it was perfect.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
2: I feel like my life is always pulling me away from my writing. So I'm generally fighting in the opposite direction to try to get back and carve out some space. But um, when I need, when I specifically need to get away from my writing because it's giving me a hard time, I like to go outside <laughs> and I like to take a walk. And that usually is helps me work through whatever I need to work through, sometimes in the back of my mind and just help me breathe again and get away from the screen.
1: Like Stephanie, when I am working um, and my mind is going and I'm in that world of, of working, I walk and so I will write and then I will walk. And it doesn't, and the walking for me is not a stoppage of work at all. In fact, it's the opposite. It's in some sense where the work really propels.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have
2: one friend, I have other friends, but I have one friend that I always go to first. That's a writer that I've known for a long time. And once you trust somebody with a first draft, you can really trust them with almost anything. I only trust that one person. (laughs) And my husband. He reads a lot of my work, too.
1: I have one friend as well. And it's funny. This friend um, is my greatest supporter. You know, no ego in it. Absolutely the greatest supporter of everything I do. And at the same time, my very, very hardest critic. And I have never, particularly with fiction, satisfied him. And so maybe in some sense, the great struggle of of my writing life is to, is that one day the great hope is that one day I might satisfy him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How have you dealt with rejection? It's just, you know, I think
2: when you're doing this long enough, you have no choice, but to just learn to let it go and build that thick skin. Um, I know for when it comes to submissions and publishing, um, the best thing you can do when something comes back as a rejection is to send it out again, just as a, like a practical trick. I already know what magazine I'm going to approach next when I send something off. So then I can always keep hope alive. The rejection comes in and this submission goes out again. Um, but other than that, you know, just remembering how rejection really is not personal. It feels personal, but it's not about if your work is good or bad. Usually it's about if the work is the right fit for that particular venue or editor. And having worked a little bit reading slush in the past, I, I do understand that dynamic. So I just try to remember that also.
1: I just try to remember that life is tragic comedy and uh, all that matters as a writer is the work. That's it. And one day I do hope to string together an extraordinary poem of um, formed by all of the rejection emails that I still have in my inbox, um, I have to do something with it. But, but, but no. I mean, the only thing to do is just what Stephanie says: is keep going.
0: And what is your favorite word? Impeachment.
1: Oh, damn, Stephanie!
2: <laughs> I just thought of that. Was that yours?
1: No, no, that's the best word ever. The word for me that uh, is the reason that I think I write is is ineffable. It's not a word that I would use in a work because it's actually defining what it is about whatever it is we're doing here on this earth that we can't understand and therefore have to write, why we write. Um, But impeachment is much better.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guests were Stephanie Feldman and Nathaniel Popkin, editors of the anthology Who Will Speak for America. You can follow First Draft on Facebook, just look for First Draft to dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin, thanks for listening.